Hey everybody, this is Matt. This is one of my favorite types of episodes because it involves several of my friends. Thanks to Cole for mixing the new intro with a background track by Randy Weafe. And we recorded this outside in Golden, so probably about halfway through, you're going to hear the train horns. And then towards the end, the Blue Jays land in the tree and start <laughs> going at it. So... It's all part of the experience. It's all fun. And Suzanne from Naples, this one goes out to you. Enjoy. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you to everybody that has been listening. I sincerely appreciate it. And with me today is a friend of mine, Donna Miller. She's a 787 pilot for American Airlines. She's a member of the 99s, which was founded by Amelia Earhart, correct? She's a member of Women in Aviation, ISA Plus 21, member of the Experimental Aircraft Association. I'm going to say a philosopher, too, after <laughs> talking to you. So, Donna, welcome, and thanks for making the time. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to find out. I want to step back in time a little bit and tell me why, at some point in your life, you didn't own a toaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, I was well into adulthood before... Um, when I learned to fly and I had this laser focus on getting my ratings that I would need to, um, to become a, a pilot. So I looked at everything as flight time. Every cost uh, was how much flight time that was worth. And I think a toaster I determined was about maybe five minutes of flight time, but everything went to flight time and uh, as opposed to frivolous things like toasters and such. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it worked. It worked. So you're a pilot, obviously. So where did your love for flying and the drive to become a pilot actually originate? Um, I wasn't exposed to it a lot as a, as a kid, but, um, Part of my semester overseas that lasted eight years uh, took me to South Korea, and I was working as a civilian for the Air Force uh, in Taegu, South Korea, and in Osan, there was an uh, aero club, and uh, from my office, I could see airplanes taking off and landing, and somebody said, you know, you could learn how to fly at the aero club in Osan, so... Um, it took me five hours to get to the Aero Club, um, 20 minutes to uh, taxi to the train station, a three-hour train ride, a 50-minute bus ride, and then I walked the rest of the way. So, uh, But it took me a year to get my private license in South Korea. Okay, so that level of either, I don't know, what do you call it, term determination or dedication, uh, and I, I want to keep on the, on the pilot thread because there's so much uh, amazing 
that's within that. But have you always been that determined that a five hour one way is not going to deter you? And where did that come from? Not always. Um, but learning to fly was something that I really wanted to do. And, and it was challenging enough and it kept my attention enough. And, and in learning to fly, there was so much to learn about navigation and weather and communication on the radio and systems, how the airplane worked and all of the, um, there's just so much to learn that by getting a pilot's license, you learn a lot of amazing things. And are you a learner in general? Are, are you fascinated by just topics? Will you go deep into something that you find interesting? I, I, I am a learner. Uh, my father was a professor at Colorado School of Mines, really smart. And I love learning. I love academia and just being in that environment. And we were surrounded by it by as kids, um, my parents had students over all the time, and it was, it was really interesting. And then just looking at his textbooks, I didn't understand any of it, um, but it was really just fascinating. And what did he teach at Mines? Um, he had a Ph.D. in metallurgical engineering, so he taught strength of materials, physics, math, all that. All right. Smart stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all the stuff that holds all the stuff together, right? Exactly. The world, the universe. <laughs> all right. So we're back in South Korea, and then you're taking a cab and walking and a train to go get your private license, correct? Mm -hmm. And then what was next after that? Um, so then I had, I had lived in... Germany prior to South Korea and um, moved back to Germany and I worked for a company called Jepson and they make aeronautical charts. So I continued to fly in Germany and worked for Jepson in aeronautical charting and, um, and then I moved back to Denver and and continue to work for Jepson in the Denver office. So an aeronautical chart, this is a, is it a sky map? Is that too simple of a term? No, that's pretty much what it is. But uh, God forbid, should you call it a map? It's a chart. <laughs> <laughs> sky chart. <It's> sky chart. <laughs> and what year approximately was that? I don't want to, I'm just curious, is like for the technology, just from my own perspective. When I started working for Jepson in the Frankfurt office, it was, I was there in 89, which was fascinating okay. because that was the year the Berlin Wall came down and my parents and my brother came over and we drove to Berlin with a hammer and chisel and, and hammered out our own pieces of the wall. And, uh, and then I stayed for another year and then before I came back. So I would have been, I graduated high school in 86 and I remember seeing that and that is, I wouldn't call it a regret, but it's something that I thought about going over and doing that because it was monumental for the, the course of history and what it symbolized. And good for you for going over there. Well, and at the time, I knew it was historic, but I didn't have any idea how huge it was. Okay, so we're now on to Jefferson Aeronautical Charting. And what's the pilot 
status? What's the pilot voyage at that point in your career? I was working on getting my ratings. And at that time, there was not a lot of hiring going on. So I didn't want to go into debt to get all my ratings quickly, not knowing if there would be a job when I came out. So I did it um, as I could afford it which is why I didn't buy a toaster. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have toast during that time at all? Uh, Yes, I could make it on the stove. I could. I I didn't need a toaster. (laughs) Problem solved. (laughs) Exactly. And then um, there's some fascinating things about your career at Jeppesen. And so uh, what – just go right ahead because I – I don't even want to um, color this or take away from any of the, the magic of these stories. Well, um, Elroy Jeppesen, who started this worldwide company and pilots all over the world use the Jeppesen charts still today. Um, his pilot's license is signed by Orville Wright. So that kind of gives you some context of, of he was a pioneer and a um, just this amazing man. He learned to fly in 1927. And um, when I was working in the Denver office, I got a call from some co-workers in the Frankfurt office, and they were going to have lunch with this gentleman. And I had heard that occasionally he would come by the office in Denver, but I had never seen him. And I I was just so envious of them. And, and they said, we would really like you to come to lunch with us to translate and to help us. And first of all, their English was just fine. But of course, I never say no to anything. So I was... Um, I want to come back to that statement too. <laughs> so I went to lunch with them and I met uh, Elroy Jeppesen. And he was just an amazing man i saw his pilot's license with orville wright's signature on it and i saw his what he called the little black book and it was all of the fields that he landed in he had been an air um, airmail pilot back in the day and flew over the mountain passes between cheyenne denver salt lake city um, and it was really dangerous these were open cockpit airplanes and and they had to go through the passes and there was one winter they lost four pilots and they only had 18 to start with Um, so he started charting in this little black book um, the best ways to get through the passes and also the fields farmers fields where they could land and so when a new pilot came on somebody would say well what's the best way to get to salt lake and and the other pilots, you could say, go ask Jeff. He knows, he knows them all. <laughs> so how he started the Jepson Airway Manual is he took his little black book and had 50 copies printed and sold them for $10 a piece to his fellow pilots. And um, so um, to meet him was just an honor beyond measure. And um, after that day, uh, I wrote a note to him and, and just told him what an honor it was. And he had a really good sense of humor. So at the very end of the note, I said, 
P.S. If you ever need a good co-pilot, give me a call. And um, not long after that, I got a call from the president's assistant. and The president of Jepson. The president of Jepson. <laughs> so I did what any rational employee would do, and I panicked and called my mother. <laughs> and she said, Donna, it doesn't take the president of the company to fire you. And I said, oh, well, of course, of course. And I was so relieved because I had four levels of management between me and the president. So um, uh, when I went into his office, he said, the Denver International Airport is naming the terminal building after Ellery Jefferson. And he needs someone to help him catalog all of his memorabilia. And your name came up. And I said, of course, I would love to do that. I would be honored to do that. And um, so the project of organizing all of this memorabilia, which he never threw anything away, um, it was fascinating and it, it was a huge job. But we got that done in about six months. But in addition, we had I helped him do some of his correspondence and I became kind of his assistant um unofficially just i i was just honored to go help him um and uh we were friends really until he passed away in 1996 so your letter i want to <clears throat> explore that a little bit because it wasn't you weren't kissing his ass and you're being genuine and um I've always tried to be, at, at least have a positive impression. When I was younger, I didn't care if the impression I had on people was negative or positive. But as I've maybe matured, I would like it to be a positive interaction. And what I love about that letter is just, you weren't asking for anything. You were just being sincere and you know you've got a great sense of humor i know that and you recognize that in him and it was non-specific but what came of that was just amazing it it started what i thought was that was one amazing day i will never forget that day that i had lunch with captain jepson but what that turned out to be was this huge door opening for so many opportunities and and I met just incredible amazing people because of that time that I had with Captain Jeff and you asked for it <laughs> I didn't know I was asking for it but uh, apparently I did and and the universe conspired to 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 grant my my wish and it really turned out unbelievably well i think the universe is typically neutral it's not going to get in your way and it's it may or may not help but i think it's um warren's even called it the vast indifference of heaven and i was thinking about that and it's like why not What's the worst that could happen if you send him a note? Maybe nothing will happen, but at least you took a chance, right? Well, and I wanted to thank him for the time that he took to have lunch with us and to 
share his story with us. And um, so it was it was to express my gratitude. Yeah. Um, and, and what came of that was just amazing beyond measure. So you actually helped curate the, is it uh, the A terminal or the, the bridge from the security or the main terminal through Concourse A, correct? At Denver right, National right. Airport. All of those things that are in those glass cases are things that that we extracted from his basement. Wow. Yeah. I want to go back to the um, the charts for a second because this is the early days of aviation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what would go into a chart? Because he's going from point A to point B. So in some ways, it's a road map. Not mm-hmm. a map, it's a chart. <laughs> <laughs> a road chart. But what other data would be in there to keep the pilot safer? What would he put into that in the because nobody knew what was going on in the skies, right? Right. And back then, um, when they were flying, they often used the train, the maps that the trains used, and they called it hugging the UP, and they would actually fly low enough to follow the rail lines. Um, but when he first started, it would be uh, where, where you could get fuel, um, if they had an electric teletype machine, if they had, if any of the, um, it, how long the field was, how what the best approach to that field was, long before there were, um, now the FA provides the information of how to do a, a, a an arrival and then an approach and then the airport diagram pilots have all of that information now and now it's all on the iPad and we used to have to carry these huge suitcase like boxes full of charts and you had to update your charts every two weeks and people would pay their children a lot of money to do it for them <laughs> what would you have to update any any time anything changed if a um, if a frequency changed or oh. when they built Denver International Airport, everything from Stapleton Airport was scrapped and you had to start completely over with new arrival procedures. There were new um, um, navigational, we we call them VORs, Um, those moved and we had new ones. And so all of that information had to be updated and then changed and and then you also have the en route charts um, for getting all across the country as opposed to just in the local area. So a lot of stuff changes on a regular basis. And that just became an industry because he had needed it for his own his own benefit. His own survival. Wow. And, yeah. Even stronger than that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we're, we curate the museum, and then what's next in your uh, flight path? So, oh. <laughs> um, so I, I went from doing the charting, and, um, and I knew that it was helping pilots, but at the same time I was getting my ratings and working on them, um, and your ratings are what, to define that a little bit? So you start out, you get your private pilot 
license, and then you add on um, an instrument rating, which allows you to fly in the clouds, so you can fly when you can't see the ground, um, and then you get your commercial license, and then you work on your multi-engine rating, so you can fly twin-engine aircraft, and then um, um, some, and then that's where people, a lot of people, uh, go on to become flight instructors, so they get their flight instructor ratings, and um, I went a different path. I Well, from Jefferson, I went to work in the training center at United Airlines, and um, Captain Jefferson had also been a pilot at United Airlines, and in fact, he was trying to do both. He was trying to fly a full schedule and then do the charts at the same time, and his doctor said, you're not going to survive doing both. Hmm. So he actually gave up his career as a pilot for United um, to do the charting full-time, um, but not before he met his wife of 67 years, I think, um, Nadine Jeppesen. She was a one of the early stewardesses before they were, became flight attendants, and back in her day, they had to be registered nurses. Mm. Um, and when they got married, she could no longer work. So, um, but they met on a Boeing 247, which is just, he, he said, uh, he, he pushed the, the button to get a cup of coffee and he got Nadine and he said that was the best deal he ever had. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I, so I went to work for uh, United at the training center, and that's when I saw the pilots coming through. And I love the training center environment. I love academics of flying, and then I love flying. So the two together was just really, I was so happy there. But I saw all the pilots coming through, and I thought, you know, smarter than I am. I could do this job. And I don't want to be 90 years old and look back and say, I wonder what would have happened had I pursued it as a career. Because even if it was a colossal failure, the question would be answered. Yeah. And so um, one of the most um, inspiring things while I was working there is one of the captains who was on the hiring committee came into my office, um, Captain Ted Stiles, great guy. He said, Donna, you can't steal second with your foot on first. And that was an aha moment in my life. And I started that day um, with a project called Stealing Second. And that it was to find what he was saying is that there is no connection between my cushy desk job and the flight deck and that I would have to go and get the experience and then come back to the airlines. So did he see the drive in you, but not necessarily the actions or the, maybe the risk going that direction to become a pilot? What did did he see? I think he saw the drive, um, but I didn't know how to go about it. And when he said that, that I would have to leave and go get the requisite experience, that was... Get uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and I, it was, it was 
horrific. My first paying flying job, I was flying car parts to Mexico out of El Paso, Texas, and then flying skydivers on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. And the pay was half of what I was making at in the training center, and and uh, we had to load and unload our own freight, and um, we had three single-engine aircraft, three twin-engine aircraft, and then three Lear 25s. And so you started out in the single-engine, and then you'd move up to the twin, and then you'd move up to the Lear. And there were some days you'd fly all three of them in one day, just flying car parts and and um, canceled checks and whatever. But it was there were days that I thought I made the colossal mistake. But you were still getting hours. You were still getting your ratings. And it wasn't glamorous, but you were putting bricks in your wall, right? Exactly. Exactly. I was I was checking off the all of the, the prerequisites that I needed to become an airline pilot. So. When I was, this is 1992, it was my first job out of college. I was a software engineer. I was working for Valley Lab in Boulder, and I was drawn to the sales and marketing department because they were way more fun than the engineers. <laughs> <laughs> and I've tried to look up this guy, um, and if anybody can help me find him, his name is Bill Kingston, and he was kind of a mentor in the fact that, like, uh, Captain Ted Stiles, I had been there maybe three months just out of college, and he's like, why don't you come work for me? in the sales and marketing department. And it's outside the scope of this conversation, but I would, uh, he had seen in me what it took me probably 12, 15 years to figure out that I should be in a people role, sales or marketing, but I didn't have the foundation or the skill set or any of the awareness to do it. But yeah, and I don't, I long ago, I got over the what ifs, but I just, kind of like you like if somebody tells me something like that now i'm gonna pay attention and maybe explore it a little bit right yeah i i think you just you don't know what you don't know and it's Mm -hmm. but when you start to figure it out and you start to learn it you just you have to run with it you just have to take that knowledge and information and and go all right, so we're flying car parts. We, you, are flying car parts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so oh, excited about God. these stories. <laughs> so you're flying car parts and skydivers in El Paso. You're unloading your own cargo, and then Captain Ted, you know, gave you that kick or that inspiration or that boost. Yeah. Then what? So one of my dear friends, uh, who is a 99, um, Colorado has a great group of 99s just really dynamic really fun group um bev sinclair had she was flying for frontier airlines at the time and she had a layover in el paso and she had flown for air midwest in the past and and so we had dinner that night and she goes oh i didn't mention i invited the whole crew well I had this little Subaru legacy. Oh, sure, we can fit an entire crew into a legacy, <laughs> you know, a clown car. So we all went, had dinner, and then the next morning we had 
Bev and I had breakfast, and she said, oh, I'm going to go back to Wichita and um, to visit some of the Air Midwest people. Um, do you have your resume? I'll, I'll take it with me. Well, you know, I carried it everywhere because I was didn't want to fly car parts any longer than I had to. So I gave her my resume, and I went from um, El Paso to Air Midwest, and at that time they had just purchased the Florida Gulf system. Um, so they were they had these fabulous bases in Florida and I went from El Paso to uh, Fort Walton Beach with the white sand beaches and this uh, and I was flying a mighty mighty beach nineteen hundred and uh, and it I was just having a ball. I was having so much fun and it was it was so much different from flying car parts. And, and of his passengers now? Yes. Okay. Yes. All 19 of them. <laughs> so that was the other thing is, it was such a small aircraft that uh, we didn't even have a flight attendant. So the first officer would have to give the briefing. And, and um, it has happened. It, didn't, it wasn't me, but one of the other female pilots gave the safety briefing and then went to fly the the airplane Uh, and the company got a letter that said the flight attendant never served any drinks and she just sat up there with the pilot the whole time (laughs) 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 yeah so (laughs) (laughs) he didn't understand that we didn't have a flight attendant and that we were pilots so it happened. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And then um, I upgraded to captain at Air Midwest, and then I got hired. I wanted to go back to United because it was it had a Denver base, and it was Captain Jeff's airline, and I so wanted to fly for Captain Jeff's airline. But um, I had put in my application also at American and Delta and um an American called first, and I interviewed with them and got hired in June of 2001. And what is a pilot interview like? It was three days long. Um, it's at that time, it's changed a little bit, but um, we had to fly the Boeing 707 simulator to. They didn't want to give anybody an advantage, so they've assumed correctly that n- nobody had flown a 707. It's a four-engine monstrosity, and you, you just don't know what, you know. But airplanes are airplanes, and they fly the same, and they have the same aerodynamic characteristics. So, um, And, and um, even the Beach 1900, it had no autopilot. Um, our boss said, I'm paying for two pilots. I'm not paying for three. So we didn't have an autopilot. And, um, and only half of our fleet had flight directors. So when I did the simulator, um, the scenario was that the autopilot and flight directors were in op. And I didn't find that as a, as a problem. And, uh, so that was pretty easy, but then we had hold my beer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There it was. Um, 
that I thought that would be the most challenging part, but it turned out not to be. Um, there was a, uh, an uh, interview with three captains, and um, and that was challenging. And then somebody from uh, Human Resources also. And then there was a, um, we call it the light pen test, which it's hand-eye coordination mm. and you're using a, a little stylus on a computer. Um, and then there were some math, mental math questions on that also. And then we had a pretty extensive physical exam. And so three days later, you're, you're done and they'll get back to you. And so they did, and I, I got the job, and I was I was thrilled, even though it wasn't my first choice, but um, but I was really happy. Um, so I started school on the seven thirty seven, um, June eighteenth of one. I got through all of the training and all the sims, and um, the international portion. And I flew to Chicago to start my initial operating experience on September 10th of one. So needless to say, I didn't go anywhere September 11th. Um, I was stranded in Chicago. And then, um, although the company said if they've started their IOE, let them finish their IOE. So I was able to do three trips and I finished September 28th and got furloughed October 1st. So my dream job, I thought I've made it. I've, I'm finally at the at the majors, and and it felt like the rug just got pulled out from under me. But um, but what I've learned from that, because it's happening again because of COVID, um, people are getting furloughed. Pilots are getting furloughed. Um, what I've learned is furlough becomes part of your story. What you do during that time, how you navigate through it, um, it just becomes part of part of your story. And I learned some amazing lessons during that time also. So in 2001, what would be the ratio of male to female airlines and commercial aviation? Were you still somewhat unique at that point? I don't even know. We were... Probably three to four percent in a one, and now oh. we're up to six percent. So even in in twenty years, eight, nineteen years, we're, we've only advanced not very far. And how was that experience? And I'm not looking for dirt or to you know throw stones here, but I mean, how was it being so unique in in a male dominated industry? Um, it's been it has not been tough it it I feel like some of it's self-induced pressure but I want to make sure that I'm prepared and and that I'm as good as I can be so there's no chance of somebody saying oh well it's you know it's a girl she can't do the job (laughs) and one of my amazing mentors um was Emily Warner. She just recently passed away. She was the first female captain in the United States. She was hired in 1973 by Frontier Airlines. And 
Um, she is so lovely and just amazing. And when I heard her speak when I was a, a fledgling pilot, she was so inspiring because she was just um, strong without being tough and and uh, smart but not intimidating and just all of these amazing things and I thought I want to be just like Emily Warner and uh, she and I became very good friends she lived here in Denver and um, she she was kind of our all of our mentor and um, we would we would have lunch every month with Emily and it was just such a just such an inspiration and, and I was really honored to introduce her into the National Aviation Hall of Fame wow. in 2014 and it was it was just amazing she had a lot of the, the women pilots that she had inspired came to the event and, and it was just really huge honor cool <clears throat> And then, where does Louie come into all this? <laughs> so it's Louis Zamperini. If if you've read the book Unbroken or seen the film um, by the same title, uh, he is an amazing. He has an incredible story, um, but it's so interesting because it's because of Captain Jepson that I met. Louis Zamperini, and it's kind of in a, a convoluted way because those two never knew each other. Um, but one of the amazing gifts that Captain Jep gave me was a necklace that has, uh, well, he gave me a piece of fabric from the original Wright Flyer. Um, as I mentioned, his, his license was signed by Orville Wright. And I took just a portion of the fabric that he gave me, and I had it made into a necklace. And I was wearing that um, at a Women in Aviation conference, and I met Eileen Collins, who is the first woman space shuttle pilot, and subsequently the first female um, space shuttle commander. And um, I talked to her after her presentation, which was absolutely amazing, and she is just an incredible person. Um, and I asked her if she would take my necklace into space, and she said she would. Uh, so she did, and I got to see her launch, and I got to go to the landing, and then I was on her guest list for subsequent launches, which was just amazing. Um, and she was being honored in California at a dinner, and uh, I went to the dinner, and I was seated at the test pilot's table, and um, I was sitting next to Bob Gilliland, who is the first SR-71 test pilot. He flew, he was the first one to fly the SR-71, um, working for Kelly Johnson at Lockheed Skunk Works. And uh, he was such an amazing man and I was the baby pilot at the time I was still I think I was at United in the training center at the time but I just had a few hundred hours and I was sitting at this table of 
amazing test pilots. And he was so kind. And um, and he said, well, if you ever get out to L.A., give me a call. And I said, don't say that unless you mean it, because I will. <laughs> I will. And uh, so I did. And But I like uh, how you tested that, though, to see if he was being nice and sincere or being just, you know, legit with it. Yeah. Yeah. And he really was. And he is, he just recently passed away as well, um, probably a year, a little over a year ago. But he is one who connects everyone. Um, and his, one of his very best friends was Louis Zamperini. And when the book came out, um, his son, who was taking him to many of his speaking engagements, just could not keep up. I mean, the book was uh, a huge success, and, and his story is so amazing. And I offered to take him to speaking engagements. And, um, and one of the funniest things was uh, there was a time he needed to go from Houston to Enid, Oklahoma, and there is no commercial service between Houston and Enid. So I borrowed a friend of mine, Bonanza, and uh, we flew him to Enid. And then Don't just gloss over that. You just borrowed a plane. <laughs> <laughs> I want to point that out. <laughs> well, you know, haven't you ever borrowed somebody's car? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, but the really fun <clears throat> thing was that Louis had... After World War II, and you just have to read his book, Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, mm-hmm. um, because it's such an amazing story. Uh, but after World War II, he got his private pilot license, and um, so we agreed that he could fly from um, from Enid back to Oklahoma City, where we would then go back to L.A. And uh, he did such an amazing job, and I. He was 93 at the time and was just incredible. And I, I look at the pictures and it just amazes me. And I, I just feel so blessed and so honored to have known all of these really, truly amazing people and, and have gotten to spend really wonderful time with all of them. I want to go back to the necklace real quick because I think that needs to be expanded upon. So it's a piece of fabric from Kitty Hawk, the Wright Flyer, and that mm-hmm. was 19... I'm forgetting what... 1903. 1903. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's 117 years old at this moment from the first thing that flew and then it went into space on the space shuttle and circled the globe and mm-hmm. it's a necklace that you have. So that is just an amazing well, artifact it's and, a piece of history and here's a, a a cool thing also about that is that after i got furloughed i was flying for a learjet charter company here in denver and so 2003 was coming around that was the centennial of flight uh, for kitty hawk and i figured that our company would be um going to Kitty Hawk because um, Harry Combs, um, who at one time was the president of Learjet, had his airplane in our management. So I 
agreed to file all the Jepson revisions for the entire year if I could take that flight. <laughs> so the fact that nobody else wanted to do that tells you how how tedious uh, filing Jepson charts was at the time. But uh, so I did get to go to Kitty Hawk, and I really wanted um, to give the necklace to one of the pilots that was going to do the recreation flight so that it would have gone really truly from wow okay kitty hawk to outer space well to space and then back to kitty hawk um so we got to kitty hawk and we got a call from our dispatcher and who said we have another flight for you and my heart just sunk no here we are we can't I can't leave. I've had my tickets for two years. Well, um, the flight that we needed to do was we had to go to Cincinnati and pick up Neil Armstrong and <laughs> take him back to the festivities in Kittlehawk. Yes, yes. So for one day, I got to be Neil Armstrong's pilot, and he was amazing. He was just so kind and down to earth and just really a lovely gentleman. I've seen pictures of him at some reunions and he's got this coat that's got stars or ass, like a sport coat, like a blazer. And I, I like bold apparel like that. And I remember seeing that photo and the rest of the astronauts are dressed very nice, very professionally. And he's just got, Oh no! I'm sorry. This is Buzz. I'm totally going off the. I'm thinking of the wrong astronauts. So. Yeah, Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. yeah, he's he's yeah. a character. He's yeah. a character. And <laughs> since Neil Armstrong has passed away, I've got to say Buzz Aldrin has really come into his own, and he's really, you know, kind of come out of the shadow of Neil Armstrong, and it's he's quite a character. So, I've always thought about this. If I met a hero or cross paths with somebody famous and i've heard other people that in some ways they're just like everybody else and they probably don't want to talk about what everybody wants to talk to them about so you're flying one of the first men on the moon what do you talk about (laughs) (laughs) well i uh, clearly, he he had all the qualifications. I asked him if he wanted to fly, and uh, he could certainly have my seat. And he said, "No, I'll just sit back here and and drink coffee." And I kept peeking back in the Learjet. There's no door or curtain, so I kind of want to peek around the corner just because I could not believe I was flying Neil Armstrong, and uh, and he was reading his paper, and and uh, he was. You know, we'd chat a little bit, but he was pretty quiet, and and I didn't want to disturb him. I didn't want to ask him those typical questions, but uh, but he was very, very kind, very nice. And uh, when we got to Kitty Hawk, there was somebody who said, um, Mr. Armstrong, can I get a picture of you with your crew? And he agreed, because I didn't want to ask for a picture or an autograph or anything but when he agreed to the photograph um, I practically threw my camera at this uh, person with the with that was going to take the photo so I do have a picture of us and, uh, and it's it's a treasure 
Well, you're a professional. And the fact that you're doing what you're doing and he's in your your aircraft and you're flying, there's um, part of it perhaps doesn't need to be spoken. Mm-hmm. That you have a bond that is just simply by being in the the aircraft doing what you're doing that that's stronger than maybe anything you could say yeah i and truly i just i felt so honored and i wanted to be so professional and i wanted to do my best job and um i mean i always do i always want to to be my best self at work especially um but when you have such precious cargo in the back, you really, really <laughs> want to do, you know, just you want to be the best you can possibly be. The the stories you've told and about the necklace and the thank you notes and things like that, I read a lot of books about people's stories and and I also, on the polar opposite of that, I get served up these Facebook and LinkedIn ads where it's people, hey, B, Annie the dog is here, <laughs> um, about you know setting goals and going and getting it and just you know never give up. And what really amazes me and impresses me about all the things that have been, I'd say, locks that you manufactured a key for they were they were small and they were quiet and they were intentional and there was nothing that was um loud or boisterous or braggadocious about it and that's something that's uh, so very impressive about this is it was a thank you note and it was a necklace and it was just and it's I think it lands so much better when it's personal and genuine and quiet. Well, I I feel so blessed the opportunities that I've had and the people that I've met and um and it really has been an unexpected life if i had designed a life it would not have been as amazing as it has been i couldn't even imagine doing the things that i've had the opportunity to do um but it it has been it has been hard i mean you know to give up a a good job at the training center and and really work hard and and you don't know what's going to happen and how it's going to shake out and um, but if you just keep at it and and yeah there were times that I that I I thought I'd made a colossal mistake I thought I I you know that maybe in fact there was a time I got down to El Paso and I I was so scared and I had to take a check ride the next day with the owner of the company, me and a, a twin. And I, you know, barely had my, my multi-engine license, and my I had my commercial multi-engine license, but you know, very few multi-engine hours. And and I thought, how can I 
go back to my cushy desk job and still save face and somehow say just didn't work out or and then I thought you know what I'll just take the check ride and then see what happens from there but but it was frightening and it was um you know and I passed the check ride and I'm like well I guess I gotta <laughs> I guess I have to do this job now and, and uh, so it's you know it's been tough and it has been challenging and um and the things that the jobs that I've taken after 9/11, um, just to stay current and qualified, and and to understand that I had to separate my net worth from my self worth. Yeah. And um, that was a huge aha moment. Um, but those things really make you stronger. They do. They they change your life and they make you see things differently and appreciate things that you may have taken for granted. Well, and I like that you brought up fear and it doesn't have to be combat. It doesn't have to be something dangerous. We can all experience fear, whether it's the next paycheck or the next step in our career. It's not a great feeling but it happens to everybody mm. and it's what you do with it when you're facing that like i get scared all the time <laughs> yeah it, it is and and you really do have to just face it head on and 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 or not but then there are consequences you know i mean it when I when I said I don't want to be ninety years old and look back and wonder what would have happened had I pursued this and and it has been a roller coaster ride and I've had to just hang on but <laughs> it has been an amazing ride and and it's not all about the career it's about the people that I've met along the way and the and the opportunities that I've had um, because of um, the people that I've met and and one of the amazing um, things that I've done in the last couple of years is um, I was flying the World War II bombers for the Collins Foundation and I would not have had that opportunity had I not um, met people that believed that I could do it or that gave me the opportunity to do it. And um, I I had purchased a, a PT-22, which is a, a World War II trainer. Mm. And um, so when I flew it to where the Collins Foundation uh, was set up, it's like barnstorming with bombers, um, uh, Somebody said, you know what that is, don't you? And I didn't know what they meant. They said, that is the gateway drug to warbirds. And and it turned out absolutely to be true. And, um, but I, I always say I came for the airplanes, but I stayed for the veterans. And to have had the opportunity to fly World War II veterans in the planes that 
either they flew or that they flew in as a part of a crew um, and to hear their stories just that opened up a whole nother world and I just I love the World War II veterans so dearly and we still we have a little group in Denver and and uh, we get together every other Wednesday for breakfast but since COVID we haven't been able to do that. How is it going from a 787 to a <laughs> you know nearly 100 year old airplane and it blows my mind when I say that because when I was a kid, a hundred years ago was the Civil War, right? And now World War Two is almost a hundred years ago. Yeah, so what yeah. is it like going from you know, a Dreamliner to <laughs> a plane like that? Well, it, it it was it's it was funny because we would um, fly three or four days flying these well seventy five year old air, airplanes, um, and then. Sometimes we'd have to go straight from flying those planes to changing into our crispy white shirts and our uniforms, and then fly. At the time, I was flying an Airbus A320, and, and it's got the side stick, and it's quiet, and it's so automated, and it's 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 so to so quiet and, and so different, so different, and it's just a different mindset, and and. Um, but still amazing. Both of them are just amazing experiences, and I love them for the differences that they are. It's probably like me and bikes, right? I can. Yeah, yeah a road bike. Like today, I'm going to go mountain biking. So <laughs> let me let me get into that mindset. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, no, today is a road bike day. Let me get into that mindset. Yeah. Yeah, I love them all. They just have different feelings and experiences and handling characteristics. But yeah, right. it's great. Right. Right. Uh, my final question is, where did your never say no philosophy come from? Was it modeled from your parents? How did you develop that? Because it's you made me feel like I'm not alone in the universe when <laughs> we started unpacking all this. And where do you think that came from? Um, I think a lot of it came from my mom. She was pretty adventurous. And and what I learned is if you say yes, and then you see what happens. And you're like, well, that was pretty great. So <laughs> the opportunity comes up again and you go, okay, sure, I'll do that. And and I think the other thing, too, is that it's not just saying yes, it's following through. Because there were times um, after I came back to American Airlines, I was furloughed for 11 and a half years. Mm. And I had different flying jobs. Um, but I was based in Miami. And Bob Gilliland said... Hey, I'm going to have lunch with Louis Zamperini this weekend. Do you want to join us? Well, he was in Palm Springs at the time. Louis was in LA and I was in Miami. So for me to take a flight from Miami to California, rent a car, get a place to stay, it took some commitment. And um, 
but for that amazing opportunity, of course I would do that. And I did that on several occasions for, for different things. It's, it's not just waiting it for it to fall in your lap. I mean, you've got to follow through. You know, if you have the opportunity, it may not be convenient, um, but it's usually worth all the effort. Yeah. <laughs> We're outside in Golden, and so the you heard the trains, and now the Blue Jays are fighting. <laughs> but it's great. It's Oh, there's a whole flock of them. <laughs> well, we could talk about aerodynamics and dogfighting. That's a really valuable point to make, is that... <laughs> I'm going to put on my headphones to see if this is even coming through. <laughs> a little bit. We'll filter that out. Okay. Um, rock. <laughs> well, maybe that's just the universe telling us that the conversation's <laughs> over. <laughs> well, the last point I'll make is that it doesn't make the saying yes doesn't make it any easier. You hit upon that. You still have to follow through. Yeah. You, you just open a different door. You still have to do the work. Right. You still have to walk through the door. And yeah, if the door's wide open, you get to choose whether or not you're going to go through it. Yeah. And But it's, I have rarely found it not to be worth it to, to just go through it. And sometimes if the door's, maybe it's, it's, uh, it's not locked, but maybe it's closed and maybe you have to like put your shoulder against it to yeah. open it. Um, but it's usually worth it. And, yeah. and, and sometimes I think we see a closed door and we walk away looking for an open one. And it's like, no, just turn the handle and open the door. Try it. Try it. <laughs> okay. Maybe it is locked, but maybe it's not. And <laughs> So, yeah, I'm a firm believer in, in trying the doors. And, and it's been an amazing life. And so I'll keep doing it. Awesome. Mm. Well, Captain Miller, thank you for uh, a wonderful flight today. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still a first officer, but I'll take it. <laughs> You're a captain in my book. Oh, thank you. thank you. But, um, yeah, this has been so wonderful to capture these stories and just the the spirit of it being adventurous and not being fearless, but still being afraid and doing it. So this has been just so wonderful. Oh, and then I hopefully, you know, somebody will listen to this and you'll be on a flight someday and then you'll announce it on the intercom. And I would love to hear that that connection has been made. That'd be wonderful. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple, Transistor, or Spotify. And I know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest. And if you do... 
please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com. Thanks for listening.